yourself to us. You're the God who has saved us, redeemed us, called us your own. Thank you for all of these great truths that we get to sing about. Thank you that you're a mighty fortress. Thank you that you're a strong refuge. Thank you that we can trust you even when all around our soul gives way. Lord, thank you for being our great high priest. Thank you for sending Jesus to be our great high priest, to, to be our mediator, to stand in our place, to bear the wrath that we deserve. Thank you for this great gospel. Thank you for making it real and true in our hearts. And I pray for those who are here today who aren't trusting in Jesus. Pray that you would convict them of their sin, that you would convict them of the glory and beauty of Jesus, and that they would be compelled to trust him alone. We open your word, Lord, with this joyful anticipation that you're going to speak to us, show us more of your glory, change us by the preaching of your word. Help us to be changed from one degree of glory to another as we behold your beauty in the face of Jesus the Christ. Lord, open your word to us now. We want to see you and we want to see what you've called us to. So Lord, would you help us now? We pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Why is the Christian life so hard? Why is the Christian life so hard? Why do we drift so easily toward laziness and materialism and selfishness? Why do so many Christians have to be persecuted and die for their faith? Why does it seem like unbelievers get to have all the fun? Why is it so hard to resist sin and temptation? Why are so many marriages broken and ugly? Why is there so much depression and anxiety? Why do racism and injustice still thrive? Why is the church so consumeristic and shallow and divided? Why do Christians get upset with one another and refuse to forgive? Why? 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 I could go on for hours asking these type of questions. And there are several biblical answers that we could give to these questions. We could point to our sin and we could show how it has tainted and corrupted everything in the world. We could point to God's good design in our suffering and how he intends to mature us through our trials. But in our text this morning, Revelation chapter 12, we find another answer. See, Revelation 12 pulls back the curtain on what we can see and touch and hold, and it shows us the reality behind it all. Revelation 12 shows us that there is a cosmic battle that is raging even now behind the scenes. Revelation 12 gives us a supernatural explanation to those why questions. Why are there so many difficulties and struggles that we experience in this life? There is a reason life is so hard. There is a real enemy who seeks to destroy and devour us. Revelation chapter 12 
is considered by many scholars to be the central and key vision to the entire book of Revelation. It's a chapter of drama and war and unbelievably good news. And so go ahead and turn over to Revelation 12 in your Bible and let's see what God's Word says. Revelation chapter 12, follow along as I read God's Word over us. John says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and, her, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony 
of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. This is the word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 says this. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Revelation chapter 12 gives us more details on how that's true, on how the devil oppresses the church and how Jesus has definitively defeated him. Indeed, this passage exists to encourage persecuted and suffering Christians that the battle they fight has already been won. Notice how this entire passage points to the victory of Jesus and Jesus' people over the devil. This entire passage shows us how the devil has been defeated by Jesus and by Jesus' people. The devil is pictured here as that great red dragon. Notice the first section in verses 1 through 6. It says Satan failed in his attempt to devour Jesus. And in the second section, verses 7 through 12, says that Satan was defeated by the angels of heaven and was thrown down to the earth. Notice that phrase, thrown down. At least five times the devil was thrown down to the earth and a victory song is then sung about his defeat and shouted by the inhabitants of heaven. And then the final section, verses 13 through 17, shows us how God protects his church even though Satan continues to attack her. And so let's look at each of these sections in detail this morning. Three sections. You'll see them on the screen behind me. Verses 1 through 6. The dragon fails to devour Jesus. Verses 7 through 12. Jesus defeats the dragon. And verses 13 through 17. God defends his people from the dragon. And so let's look at that first section in verses 1 through 6. The dragon fails to devour Jesus. So notice in verse 1 and verse 3, John uses the word sign. He says he saw a sign in heaven. Now this word immediately lets us know that he's describing a symbol. He's describing a picture that represents something deeper. In verse 1, the sign is of a pregnant woman who is clothed with the sun. And in verse 3, the sign is of a great red dragon. Now, it's very easy to identify who the great red dragon is. This is Satan. In fact, notice verse 9. We don't even have to guess who the dragon is because John clearly identifies this great red dragon. Verse 9. And the great red dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Notice that John calls this dragon that ancient serpent. What is he referring to here? Well, if you know your Bible, your mind should immediately go back to Genesis chapter 3, right? And the serpent in the Garden of Eden that tempted Adam and Eve. In fact, I think Revelation chapter 12 is basically uh, uh, unpacking that first gospel promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Revelation 12 is sort of a commentary 
on Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 says, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so the dragon is the devil and the pregnant woman's child is the Messiah. Look at verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now this phrase, to rule the nations with a rod of iron, it's a direct quote from a messianic promise in Psalm 2. That the Messiah would rule the nations specifically with a rod of iron. And so this passage is just quoting from Psalm 2. So this child is the Messiah. And so if the child she gives birth to is the Messiah, the Christ, then who is this pregnant woman in verses 1 and 2? As you can imagine, Catholics say this is Mary, the mother of our Lord. However, this woman evidently represents something bigger than just Mary. I don't deny that Mary is included here, but it certainly is something much bigger than just Mary. John says she is a sign. She's a sign of what? Well, this woman who gives birth to the Messiah represents all the true and faithful people of God. In other words, this woman represents the universal church of Jesus. Notice how she's described in verse 1. She is clothed with the sun. <laughs> Try to imagine someone being dressed in the radiance, in the brightness of the sun. And notice she has the moon under her feet, and she has a crown of 12 stars. Well, this seems clearly to be a reference back to Genesis chapter 37, where Joseph had that famous dream, where Joseph dreamed that the sun, the moon, and the stars were all bowing down to him. So these 12 stars probably represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And so this woman represents true and faithful Israel. Israel in the Old Testament is often portrayed as a, as a woman in childbirth giving birth to the promised seed. Pregnancy and labor pains represent the waiting and the suffering of the people of God as they awaited the Messiah over thousands and thousands of years. And notice verse 17, the very last verse of this passage, tells us that it's not just the people of God before the Messiah, before the birth of Christ, but it's all the people of God from all of history that are in view in this sign. And so in Revelation 12, the Messiah is about to be born. There's a pregnant woman about to give birth to the, the Messiah, the one who's to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so this is the beloved Christmas story told from an angle we don't usually think about and sing about. This is the Christmas story from the perspective of the spiritual realm. And so in verses 3 and 4, we see that this great red dragon is ready to devour the Messiah. And this dragon is great with authority, great with power and strength. Notice he's described as having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns. Now, horns in apocalyptic literature always represent strength. 
So this, this great red dragon has massive strength, and he has these seven crowns which seem to be mocking the crowns of God. Satan is very powerful, but he's also an imposter. He is often described in ways that reflect God's power and God's authority because that's what Satan wants. He wants to be in the place of God. But notice Satan uses his power to destroy. Verse 4 says that with his tail, he swept a third of the stars out of the sky. In other words, he rebels against God's good design. He destroys and he rebels. And look at what Satan is trying to do in the second half of verse 4. This picture is intended to be really shocking and really grotesque. This great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns is waiting for this woman to give birth. As she pushes in labor, this disgusting dragon is standing between her legs, waiting to grab the baby and eat it and devour it. The dragon hates this promised child. He hates this one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. And so he hopes to consume him at birth so that this child never gets an opportunity to do what he was ordained to do. See, friends, ever since the Garden of Eden, Satan has been trying to thwart God's plan. Remember, Satan incited Cain to kill his brother Abel because Abel represented the seed of the woman. Satan tried to keep Abraham and Sarah from having children so that the promise of God would be in jeopardy. Remember, Satan incited Pharaoh to have all the male Israelite children killed, but Moses was protected by God. Satan incited Herod to order all the male babies in Jerusalem, I mean in Bethlehem, two years old and younger to be killed when he heard about the birth of the Messiah. Now this is a side point, but I think it's worth mentioning in this context. Satan hates babies. Satan hates babies. Satan has always tried to devour children because they are a threat to him. Because God intends to use them, children, for his purposes. So hear this clearly. The great red dragon is still inciting people to kill babies today. Satan, the great red dragon, is behind the multi-billion dollar abortion industry in our country. So one of the most practical ways I think that we as the people of God can engage in spiritual warfare and crush the great red dragon who seeks to devour, who seeks to kill, who seeks to steal is by having and adopting and rescuing lots of babies. Satan hates when the people of God do that. He hates it. Back to the main point. There is a supernatural realm that impacts the physical realm we live in. There is an enemy of the people of God who is seeking to destroy everything Jesus builds. Why is it so difficult to follow Christ in this world? Why is following Christ attended with so many sufferings, so many discouragements? It's because there is an enemy seeking to devour and destroy everything that Jesus is building. But friends, praise God, 
Satan always ultimately fails in his attempts to devour. In verse 5, instead of being devoured by the great red dragon, notice the Messiah is caught up to God and to his throne. I love this. This is very interesting. Notice how this one verse summarizes the entirety of Jesus' life and ministry and redeeming work. Jesus was born, and the next thing we hear is that he's snatched up to heaven. So he's born, and then he ascends to the throne. Well, obviously, this is a shorthanded way to call to our mind the entirety of Jesus' life and work. Between Jesus' birth and his ascension, he lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a substitute for sinners, and he rose victoriously from the dead. And and we're going to see that victory more clearly later in this passage. But here we see that the devil fails in his attempt to devour the child. And in verse 6... The woman flees to the wilderness where she enjoys God's nourishment. So what are these 1,260 days? Well, there are other ways in this passage in the book of Revelation that this same time period is described. We also see it described as 42 months or three and a half years or even you see that phrase time, times, and half a time. All of these references come from the book of Daniel. In fact, if you want to do some, uh, a lot of study on this. You can go back to our study of the book of Daniel, particularly the sermon on the Daniel chapter 9, and you'll see that we dealt with some of this there. But there, is, there are many, many speculations and dogmatic interpretations about these specific dates and these specific time periods. We don't have time right now to study them in full, but let me just summarize how I understand these time references. Numbers in the book of Revelation are symbolic obviously. And so this seems to be these these few ways to describe three and a half years, 42 months, 1,260 days, they seem to be symbolic of a short period of time. I think these are references to the entire church age from the time of the resurrection and ascension of Jesus to the time of his second coming. In other words, the time period that we are currently living in right now. The time between Jesus' ascension, we see here in verse 5, to the time when he returns. So here's the bigger point. How long is God going to protect and nourish his people? How long is he going to protect them from Satan's desire to devour? Through the entire church age. Or to say it another way, until Jesus returns and casts Satan into the lake of fire. So that's the first section, verses 1 through 6. The dragon fails to devour Jesus. But here's the second section, verses 7 through 12. Jesus defeats the dragon. So in verses 7 through 12, we see the defeat of Satan expanded on from the perspective of heaven. The cross and resurrection and ascension of Jesus sets off this epic war in heaven. Michael, who is the archangel, and his warrior angels square off against the powerful red dragon and all of his fallen angels. There was literally a war in heaven. Just imagine this. A war in heaven. I imagine this war was more epic and classic than any war the Avengers ever fought. And notice verse 8. 
the dragon and his angels were defeated and they were kicked out of heaven. There was no longer any place for them. Just a little bit of word of advice here. If you're in a fight about some territory and one party gets kicked out of the territory, that means that party left. They lost. They lost the war. And so there's no longer any place for them. Now, the point of this vision is not to draw some grand theological truths out of every part of it, but it does seem like this passage is teaching us some important truths. It does seem like this passage is teaching that before the cross and resurrection, Satan still had access to heaven, to the throne of God. Right? We see this in the book of Job, where God allows Satan to make some accusations before him in heaven. And so maybe even after the fall, Satan was allowed to appear before God in heaven to accuse the saints. But with the decisive war that was won by Jesus, Satan was permanently cast down to earth and barred from heaven. And in case verse 8 isn't clear enough about who won this war and who was defeated, notice verse 9 says three more times that the dragon was thrown down. Look at it. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. We see that same phrase again in verse 10 and again in verse 13. Satan was thrown down. The devil was decisively, soundly defeated. Jesus won and Jesus always wins. And in light of the dragon's defeat, notice this victory song that resounds in heaven. Look at verses 10 through 12. John says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. So here's the Christmas gospel. Here's the good news of great joy that will be for all the peoples. Salvation is secured in Jesus. The people of God have conquered. Our accuser has been thrown down. Notice verse 10 it contains this really helpful description of how Satan attempts to defeat us. It's important to know how Satan tempts us and tests us. It says, Satan accuses us. He is called the accuser of the brothers. He tries, it says, to accuse us day and night. In other words, all the time before God. And I think knowing this is one of the most practical truths in this passage. Because we all know how devastating accusations are. Satan loves to accuse us. He loves to point out how guilty we are and how half-hearted our worship really is. He accuses us all day long. Here's the reality that we have to come to terms with. Here's the reality about Satan's accusations that we need to acknowledge this morning. Satan's accusations against us 
are true. They're true. We are guilty. We do deserve God's wrath. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has silenced the accuser. Jesus has agreed with the devil's accusations, and he has said, put those accusations on my account. Jesus has said, it is true that Justin has done all of those horrible things. He is that selfish. He is that prideful. But he is mine, and I bear his guilt. I bear his sin. I take the wrath that he deserves, and I put my righteousness on him. And so, dragon, you can no longer accuse him. This is why Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil, to crush the accuser's head. And so what should we do when the accuser reminds us of our sin, reminds us of our guilt? We agree with him. We say, you're right about me. In fact, you're not omniscient. If you knew everything about me, you'd see I'm even worse than you say. And then you look to Jesus and you remember that all your sins were paid in full. And you remind yourself that Jesus has defeated the accuser and he has made us more than conquerors in him. Notice how, the text tells us how we have conquered. How have we conquered? Look at verse 11. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. By the blood of the Lamb. Friends, our, our defense to the accusations of the enemy is not, oh, no, I'm not that bad. No, our defense is the blood of Jesus poured out for the forgiveness of our sins alone. I love this song that says, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. We've conquered by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Notice, because we have loved not our lives, even unto death. Now listen, this is not a reference to sharing our personal testimony, although that's certainly part of it. But this is referring to our witness for Jesus in spite of the cost. It's saying we love Jesus so much that we declare his greatness, we declare his praise, even if it costs us our lives. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the testimony of Jesus and who he is and what he has done. And so how do we cope with the dragon's rage? How do we fight against his accusations? We do so with the weapons that have been given to us, mainly the blood of the Lamb. The gospel of Jesus is the greatest weapon we have in this war. This is why here at Miller Heights we love to sing about Jesus and his death for our sins, his work on our behalf. This is why we love to talk about the gospel. Because we have to preach it to ourselves so much that we believe it, that we believe we're that bad and Jesus is that good of a savior. So friends, Satan is a defeated enemy. He's still dangerous because he knows his time is short. He knows he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire when Jesus comes. And so he's seeking to do as much damage as possible. He's defeated, yet still dangerous. And so resist him, standing firm in your faith in Jesus, clinging to the precious blood of Jesus, knowing that Jesus has defeated the dragon and he has done so in your place. 
Well, let's look at the third and the final section here in verses 13 through 17. God defends his people from the dragon. So verse 13 says that after being soundly defeated, the dragon made it his ambition to pursue the woman. Again, this woman represents the true church, the true people of the Lord Jesus. She is the people of God. And because the dragon hates Jesus, he now seeks to destroy and devour Jesus' people. If I may say it this way, the devil is hell-bent on devouring and destroying the church of the Lord Jesus. Satan knows his time is limited. He knows his effectiveness is limited. And therefore, the only thing he knows to do is to wreak as much havoc as he possibly can as he awaits being thrown into the lake of fire. 1 Peter 5 says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. This is the bad news, but the good news from this passage is that God has promised protection for his people. Notice what happens in verse 14. This woman is given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent to be nourished in the wilderness. God gives us wings. God provides the nourishment that we need. And in verse 15, the serpent tries to sweep us away with a flood. But verse 16, God causes the earth itself to swallow up the devil's river. Friends, God will move heaven and earth to protect his people. This doesn't mean we won't suffer or be persecuted. God never promises physical protection. God promises spiritual protection. He will hold us fast. He will guard our faith. He will provide the nourishment we need to continue trusting in him no matter what the dragon or this world throws at us. And so verse 17 is really the summary of this passage and of what's going on here in this church age before the return of Jesus. Here's the true picture of what we deal with in this life. Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Friends, based on verse 17, let me ask you a question. Do you want to keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus? If you're a Christian, you should say, yes, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is one who says, I'm with Jesus. I'm with Jesus. I want to follow Jesus. But verse 17 says that if you say yes to that, if you say, I, I'm with Jesus, then what that means is the dragon is, is seeking to devour and destroy you and your faith. See, when we seek to follow Jesus, when we seek to obey him, we sign up for a spiritual battle. But we do so knowing that God has promised to protect us and he has promised to nourish us. So friends, as we move toward the Lord's Supper, let me highlight just a couple of encouraging truths from this epic chapter that I want us to be encouraged by. If you're trusting and following Jesus, I want you to be massively encouraged by what we see in this passage. Notice Saints, be encouraged because, number one, Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Saints, be encouraged 
Jesus has promised he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Saints, be encouraged because secondly, Jesus has silenced the devil's accusations against us by his own blood. Saints, be encouraged because the accusations have been silenced. They've been paid for by the blood of Jesus. And finally, saints, be encouraged because number three, Jesus has won the victory for you in your place. Jesus has won the victory for you in your place. Friends, this is why we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. To remember and proclaim the victory that we have in Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. This is why we, we partake to remember this victory. To celebrate this victory that Jesus has won. The Lord's Supper exists because Jesus wants us to remember his precious blood. He wants us to think about and proclaim that his body was broken, his blood was poured out for our ultimate victory. And so if that's you, if, you, if you're right there in verse 17 and want to follow Jesus and want to cling to his testimony, then we invite you to partake of these elements as you remember the sacrifice of Jesus for your sins. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul said that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as we partake, let us be amazed that we have such a great Savior who died in our place for our sins. But let us also look forward to that day when Jesus will return in all of his glory and all of his might and power. But friends, if you're not trusting in Jesus today, then you should not partake of this supper Paul warned us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we should not partake of these elements in an unworthy manner. So if you're not a Christian, if you're not trusting in Jesus' blood and righteousness, then please do not partake this morning. But rather utilize this time to pray and ask God to change your heart. Only if you're trusting in Jesus' death for your salvation should you partake of these elements. And so let's do as Paul commanded us in 1 Corinthians 11. Let's take a few moments of silence for the purpose of examining our hearts. Take a moment to consider your relationship with God. Are you trusting in Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your greatest treasure? Take this time to confess your sins and run to Jesus for cleansing and for forgiveness.